been our pattern here at Grace Redeemer Church to kick off each ministry season, uh, January and September, with a mini-series that we call Grace Stories. And we continue that tradition today uh, and for the two weeks to follow. And uh, with a Grace Story, we ask various members of GRC to tell uh, part of their story of God's grace at work in their own lives. And then a pastor follows that up with a devotional uh, where we take a passage of scripture that relates to some themes from their story and uh, reflect on that and, uh, and, and uh, apply it to the rest of us uh, in light of um, what God is doing. And so whenever we share our stories with one another, it's, it's important for us to remember that these stories are absolutely about us. They're our stories, but ultimately, they're God's story. They're, they're testimony of God's work of grace in our lives, the God who works in us and through us. And so uh, each story becomes just another piece of evidence of the God who transforms people's lives, the, the redemptive goodness of God at work in our lives and our world. And though the details are different and um, everybody's story is unique in some ways, there are always elements that all of us can relate to and, uh, and, and share with. And so this morning, Cliff Cordes is going to give his story. And Cliff's story is a story about how discipleship uh, addresses apathy. Discipleship addresses apathy and how comfortable religious routine gives way to a growing thirst for God. So, Cliff, come and share with us. Share with us. Good morning, church family. I just want to say, despite how I look or sound this morning, I am excited to be up here sharing my story with you. (laughs) And I pray God uses it for his glory uh, in your life as well. So I'm going to be sharing on the theme of discipleship in my life over the last few years, Um, but I'll start with some backstory. So I believed in God for almost as long as I can remember. I don't know what generation believer I am on each side of my families, but almost everyone I'm aware of has been some stripe of Christian faith. In my youth, I didn't have any major visible sin issues and appeared to be a fairly decent Christian guy. And inwardly, It was mostly true as well. I grew in my understanding of who God is and what he did for me, a sinner. I didn't mind being in the family that never missed a week of church or youth group. As a young adult, I joined YWAM, that's Youth with a Mission, a missions organization that primarily gives young people easy access to share the gospel around the world. I loved traveling, meeting cool people, and growing as a person in my faith. After five years, Alternating between missions work and courses, and then returning home to make money for my next trip, I met my wife Whitney. Uh, We began dating in Bertigny, Switzerland, and married two years later. And we've had the privilege of calling GRC, our church family, for eight of the ten years we've been married. When Pastor Steve asked me if I'd be willing to share my story, my first thought was, my life has been pretty uninteresting. They don't make movies about people who endure a pretty good childhood and transition into a very average adult life. I want to hear about radical transformation, hardened criminals repenting and turning from hate to love. That's inspirational. I don't mean to say that I think I'm perfect or even a good person. I knew I was a sinner deserving of God's judgment, but I didn't see my life as being all too inspiring. However, I knew that I did, of course, have a testimony of my brokenness and God's greatness, 
as all believers do. By sharing it, I hope to give glory to God and encourage anyone struggling in the ways I have. So after the excitement of traveling abroad and serving God in new ways through my early 20s, I slowly began to lose my passion for loving and seeking him in my daily rhythms as I settled into life at home and work. Being a Christian became something I just took for granted. I knew God and I believed in him, but I wasn't desperate for him. Without the structures that I had in place through family and then the missions organization, I didn't take responsibility for my spiritual disciplines. I realize now that a primary sin in the season was self-idolatry. My personal peace and comfort were of most importance to me. I believe that the Bible refers to this as being lukewarm. I didn't abandon my faith and become a hedonist, but I wasn't putting God first either. I was content to know the gospel and believe the right things and even serve God in church. But all the while, I knew I wasn't living a disciplined life daily committed to God. Two years ago, Pastor Steve asked me to join something he called a life group. He explained it would be a small group of guys committed to meeting weekly. It would include being in the Word, getting open and honest about our lives, struggles, and hopes, spending time in prayer, and focusing on missional living. We met over lunch, and he talked. And as he talked through each of these points, my mind instantly went to excuse mode. I thought this sounded way too structured for a creative guy like me. But through the conviction of the Spirit, I realized this is exactly what I needed. Deep down, I knew that this me-first attitude I had was wrong, and repentance would require me to seek God first, not myself. I also knew I couldn't do this alone. Joining a group like this is not a silver bullet in fighting sin. It doesn't give you special standing with God or make you a higher tier of church member or something. Yet God works. Yet the way God works through small groups of people who are committed to each other, who earnestly seek him through Bible study and prayer, and who offer accountability was amazing to experience firsthand. I learned that I could be honest with these guys about my life, and instead of the blank looks and uncomfortable silence that I feared, these guys would listen, give feedback, and most importantly, pray for me. Through non-judgmental accountability, I was able to make daily Bible reading and prayer a habit. I became acutely aware of and convicted that I did not care for Jesus' command to share his message with my neighbors. I grew in my understanding of what being a God-honoring husband and father meant and worked towards changes that I knew needed to, I needed to make. As I look back on our conversations from that group, there's one that stands out. We were sharing about how we think Jesus thinks about us personally. I thought about my past, my apathy toward him, and felt ashamed. I answered that I was amazed Jesus doesn't just ignore me the way that I've ignored him. Steve asked me if I really believed that Jesus, the perfect son of God, who knows all that I've done, really loves me. I paused. Of course I knew that Jesus loved me. I grew up singing children's songs about it. I'd heard about it all my life, and I shared that with others. But he didn't ask me if I knew it. He asked me if I believed it. Did I believe that Jesus, that God, loves me? And that evening, God did something in my heart that's hard to put into words. I think the best way may be to say that God opened my darkened eyes to his redeeming and never-ending love for me. I saw a stark contrast between what I thought and what I believed. 
It invigorated a sense of awe and trust in God. I realized how foolish it was to put my comfortable life first when I knew that path led to coldness, isolation, and ultimately death, versus how good it is to know, trust, obey, and enjoy Jesus. So that's where I want to live now. Spending time worshiping God and reading his word used to seem mostly to be a chore or an obligation. With the changed perspective, it feels like the greatest honor that I can be in relation to my loving creator. Because I believe his word, not just know his word, I don't have to fear his rejection or abandonment. It hasn't been a straight road from old ways to a new healthy life, and I'm very much still on this journey. But if God had not interrupted my life through this small group of guys spending a few hours a week together, I know I wouldn't be where I am today spiritually. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9, Paul writes that there are people who plant seed and people who water seed, but it is God alone who makes things grow. God has used many people in my life to sow and water, but I know it is only through his providence that he has made me grow. Thank you. Let me pray for you. Stay here. Let's pray for Cliff and for the word. Father, we thank you for what you've done in Cliff's life, Lord. Thank you for a faithful family who raised him going to church and pointing him to Jesus. And Lord, thank you for people all along the way in his life, experiences that he's had that has brought him to this point. And Lord, thank you that you have revealed yourself to him in fresh ways, deeper ways in these last few years, Lord, giving him a greater appreciation of the gospel for him. Lord, that it's your love that defines his life. So, Lord, continue to help him grow in that reality, to grow in a greater desire and hunger and thirst for Christ, a greater appetite for your word, and, Lord, a longing to find his life in you. Uh, Lord, use him in our lives as he makes disciples himself. Uh, Lord, bless him, work through him, bear fruit in and through him for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Cliff. Well, I think a, a lot of us can relate to Cliff's story. You know, as he said, uh, it's, it's not a dramatic testimony of a hardened criminal turning from hate to love. Uh, it's the story of a normal kid growing up in a normal family that enjoyed going to church. You know, he's believed in God from as long as he can remember, and virtually everyone in his family has professed faith in Christ. He's heard the gospel throughout his entire life, and he understood early on that he was a sinner saved by grace. And his faith meant enough to him to spend five years as a missionary uh, with YWAM as, an, as a young adult. And while most of us have never done that, that time in his life with YWAM was followed by a very normal experience. He transitioned back into normal life here, getting married, working a job, going to church, raising a family. And the problem wasn't that Cliff's life was normal. There's nothing wrong with normal, faithful, everyday devotion to work and family and church for the glory of God. The problem was that Cliff came to realize that he was taking God for granted. Just going through the motions of his faith, he acknowledged, he said, that he wasn't actually intentionally pursuing God, but instead he was content to just enjoy his personal comforts in life. A normal, nice guy, living a normal life, going to church, going through life, 
lukewarm. I wonder if you can relate. Do you believe in God, but take him for granted? You haven't abandoned your faith, but you're not passionately pursuing God either. The activities of the Christian life may feel more like a checklist of activities that you know you ought to be involved with, rather than an adventure uh, in pursuit of the glory of God. Currently, Cliff describes his faith differently. Praise God. He acknowledges that he's still very much in process, but rather than seeing worship and Bible reading and missional living, evangelism as spiritual chores or obligations, he said that it feels like the greatest honor. The fact that he is in a relationship with his loving creator. And that's getting at the heart of what the Christian faith is all about. God created us to glorify him and enjoy him. To long for him intensely because he and he alone can satisfy the longing of our souls. King David describes this experience in Psalm 63. That's our passage today that I'd like us to look at. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along or uh, follow along on the screens. Uh, let's read it together and then we'll, we'll reflect on some of its themes in light of Cliff's story and our own. And I'll read verses 1 through 8. Of Psalm 63. So if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Psalm 63, verses 1 through 8. A psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I thank of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, the first thing that I'd like us to reflect on from this passage is that the heart of our faith is a longing for God. The heart of our faith is a longing for God. King David wrote this psalm during a very difficult time in his life, most likely when he was fleeing from his son Absalom, who was uh, behind a rebellion against him. And without getting into the details of that this morning, David was in danger for his life. His life was threatened. He was in danger of death. And he had to, to flee into the desert of Judah, which is one of the most barren regions on, on earth. And his experience in the desert gave him a picture, a profound picture, of his condition apart from God. In verse 1, he says that he, uh, he acknowledges that he was separated from God's sanctuary, which was in Jerusalem. He missed it, and he was longing for that sense of the presence of God, which he had enjoyed previously in the temple, in the sanctuary. And so he saw himself as thirsting for God the way a man thirsts in the desert where there is no water. Now, Cliff's life wasn't in danger. 
uh, at least that I'm aware of, but, but he came to see that in his spiritual apathy, he didn't long for God the way David did. And Cliff recognized that as a problem, a problem in his life. David's whole being longed for God. Cliff described himself as taking God for granted. It's easy for all of us to do that too, isn't it? Most people do not even know that it is God that our souls are longing for. We seek satisfaction in all kinds of things, right? We may believe in God or not, but even if we do, we may trust him to save us from our sins. And truth be told, we spend our lives pursuing other things apart from him. So we seek satisfaction by escaping through entertainment or obtaining a certain lifestyle or living for the weekend or the next vacation or experience or proving ourselves through our studies or through our work or, as in Cliff's case, just being comfortable with the routine of life. And none of those things are inherently bad. In fact, we can experience them as God's gifts to us. They can be means through which we live for the glory of God. But when they become substitutes for God, when God kind of drifts to the background or becomes a means to an end of achieving those things, they they become idols in our lives. And, And the Bible describes all of these God substitutes like broken wells that cannot hold water. They promise to satisfy our thirst, but they can't. The great mathematician and physicist Blaise Pascal famously said, There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus. But Psalm 63 tells us secondly that those who long for God can be satisfied in God, with God. Because David longed for God like a thirsty man in the desert, he earnestly sought God, and what he sought, he found. David tells us that he had been satisfied by God in the past. In verse 2, he explains that he had seen God in the sanctuary. He had beheld God's power and glory. And so in worship, David was reminded of the power and the splendor of God, the creator of all things, uh, the deliverer of David throughout many points in his life. Uh, God was his protector. He affirmed in the Psalms as he worshiped God that God is the righteous ruler, the supreme king who will make everything that's wrong in the world right one day. He, he saw the power and glory of God and would remind himself of that in worship. And it was the memory of those, those joyous moments in the sanctuary that made his present experience so painful. But despite missing those experiences in the temple, David was still satisfied with God in the present. Verse 3 is in present tense. Your love, God, is better than life. Everyone acknowledges that life is good. We'll cling to our life at whatever cost. We pursue all these God substitutes that we do because we think that they'll improve our lives. But David, who was fleeing for his life, says God's love is better than life. The Hebrew word that he uses for love here is chesed, right? It's often translated loving kindness or covenant love. 
And it stresses the faithful continuation of God's love, that it never fails. God's love is steady. It's unchangeable. Life can be lost, but the covenant love of God can never be lost. The Apostle Paul wrote, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's covenant love is ultimately expressed and fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus lived the life that we should live and don't. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins in our place so that we will never have to. And because he's taken away our sin and given us his perfect record of righteousness, we are accepted by God. We are significant. Through the love of God for us in Christ, we are secure. We have nothing to prove. Everything our hearts long for are found in a relationship with him. And in Christ, the temple that David longed for became flesh and dwells with us, lives, in fact, in us through the Holy Spirit. None of the God substitutes that we pursue to find satisfaction love us like that. Only God's love is unchangeable and eternal and steady and will satisfy forever. David had been satisfied by God in the past. He still is in the present. And he also looks forward to how he will be satisfied by God in the future. In verse 5, he says, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. The experience of, of satisfaction that we have from God in this life is, in this life is, is like a foretaste, right? It's, it's not complete, We get glimpses of it. It's like a deposit guaranteeing even more to come. The Bible promises that one day we will be completely and fully satisfied when Jesus returns and fixes everything that's wrong with this world. Heaven is described as a banquet, as a marriage feast where all of our hunger and thirst will be satisfied. So how do we have this experience of God that David describes in this psalm? It doesn't just come to us out of the blue. We're satisfied in God as we pursue him. David earnestly seeks God in verse 1. He engages in corporate worship in the sanctuary, verse 2. He sings praises to God in worship, verses 3, 4, and 5. He meditates on God in private through personal devotions. He clings to God Verse 8, these are not self-righteous things that he does to earn God's favor. These are a man desperate for God, to experience God, to know God himself in a relationship with God. Psalm 63 describes a man who pursues God. Cliff formally believed in God, but he took him for granted. He knew the gospel, he believed the right things, but he didn't engage with God day in, day out. It wasn't uh, something he longed for. But he knew that he needed to, and he knew that he needed community to help him to do so. Cliff spoke of a discipleship group that encouraged each other to earnestly seek God through Bible study and prayer and accountability and missional living, things like this, the normal Christian life. 
And he described a non-judgmental accountability that encouraged him to pursue God when it would be easy to just grow cold. It exposed things in his heart that weren't healthy, uh, like a lack of desire to share the gospel with the lost. It, it uh, surfaced things that needed to change in his marriage. It supported him as he thought, sought to grow in those areas. But what made any change that Cliff experienced possible was not ultimately what he did or what the group did. It was coming to experience the gospel in a deeper, more profound way. The gospel that he knew and trusted in, he came to appreciate in a deeper way. Cliff had placed his faith in Jesus many years before. He knew he was loved by God. But at one point in the process, he described experiencing God's love for him in a deeper, more profound way. In spite of Cliff's apathy towards God and the things of God, he came to experience God's unconditional chesed love for him. When God looked at Cliff, the expression on God's face was not disappointment or disapproval at all the things he got wrong. It was delight. Because God sees Cliff in Christ. Perfect, holy, righteous. He came to appreciate in a greater way that God's face smiled at him when he looked at him because of God's love for him in Christ. When Cliff's thirst was quenched by this experience of God's love, he said, it invigorated a sense of awe and trust in God. He goes on to say, I realized how foolish it was to put my comfortable life first when I knew that path offered nothing and how good it is to know, trust, obey, and enjoy Jesus. It's beautiful. We need one another to consistently pursue God like this. Uh, Like a log pulled out of the fire, the flame in our hearts just inevitably tends to cool when left on its own. But when placed in that fire with the other logs, we we help one another burn with this passion for the Lord. And so let me know if, if you long for a greater thirst for God in your life, you want to want him more, uh, and you want to join a discipleship group or a Bible study, I'll help you get connected. That's what it means to be the church, to help one another grow as disciples of Jesus who glorify him and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, which is expressed in your Son. Lord, thank you that though we're apathetic towards you, our hearts are cold towards the things of you, Lord, at least not consistently uh, following you with, uh, with full hearts, Lord. Thank you that you love us, that you're committed to us, that your covenant love is perfect and unchanging and eternal. Lord, thank you that you are the one who can satisfy us. You are worthy of our worship, Lord. Show us where we shortchange ourselves and bring uh, and, and, and fail to, to glorify you because we seek to be satisfied in other ways and other things apart from you. Lord, help us, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, to do it for your glory, Lord. In the doing of normal, everyday life, we would do it as, um, as an act of worship uh, in a relationship with you for your glory for our joy. 
Father, work in our lives. Help us to overflow this to other people, to have a reason for the hope we have that we can offer with gentleness and respect. Lord, would it overflow from us as we experience more of you for ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.